welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact that they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. And yay! Welcome everyone to the first episode of season two. We are so glad to be back. Um, And we are really happy that you're tuning in with us. 2020 was just the worst year ever. And our Mm -hmm. hearts go out to everyone who has experienced isolation, loss, hardship, and pain last year. And we hope that we've been able to bring you just a little bit of joy because you and this podcast have brought us a lot of joy. So we're really excited for what's in store for season two. And we cannot wait to share it with you throughout 2021. Yeah. Also, a quick update from us. We are now live with some merch. So if you want to get some computer stickers, mugs, or a tote bag with our faces on it, then head on over to our website and click on the merch page for more info. But we got to move on to our episode. We are going to be talking about a topic that's pretty fitting for like the new year because I feel like new years are all about like resolutions and yeah yeah new year new me like being the best version of yourself Mm -hmm. and so we are going to be talking about beauty we're talking hair we're talking face we're talking makeup we're talking Botox just kidding we're not really talking about Botox oh my god (laughs) I love Glossier but we are going to be discussing beauty and beauty standards today and yes we know we're not a lifestyle podcast nor do we want to be because let's face it We are a mess like 92% of the time (laughs) and us talking about how we're trying to not be messes like just wouldn't be interesting. But womanhood, femme energy, beauty, physical health, mental health, these things are all related and they're intertwined. And so we thought it would be worth exploring. Right, Char? Yes, for sure. Yeah, great. So then let's start with how we always start. Um, why don't you share your thoughts with me about beauty standards, women, just what is going through your mind? What do I think about beauty? I don't know. I like personally really like beauty, I guess. Like I love makeup. I love skincare. Like I literally just listened to a podcast today about (laughs) how to use retinol. It was like an hour long. It was great. I learned so much. (laughs) Oh my God. You have to tell me how to use retinol. Charlotte single-handedly introduced skincare into my life yeah like Like, you didn't even use you didn't even (laughs) wash your face before (laughs) my skin looks better and I just feel like a million freaking bucks yeah yeah so I love I love all that people have a lot of conflicting views like I was talking to one of our mutual friends today and she was shocked that I put on real clothes some days and not always just wear sweatpants but that's her vibe is to always wear athleisure wear and I was like I go back and forth I like athleisure but I also like putting on jeans cute sweater um I think everyone has different ideas of what beauty standards are to them and what makes them feel comfortable. I'm interested to hear about what it's been like forever. I'm assuming we're yes. talking about forever since you asked me to talk about Mesopotamia. <laughs> I learned a lot researching for this episode and so I'm really excited to share it because I think I did a lot of breath coverage here. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be talking about a lot of different civilizations, a lot of different cultures and giving little snapshots over time, which I'm excited about. Cool. Yay. So let's dive into it, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, like I said, I wanted to do something different with this episode to avoid making it just another discussion between 
two millennial Gen Z girlfriends talking about beauty standards and how society oppresses us into believing we need to look a certain way and we need to fight back and et cetera, et cetera. Because even though I love all those things and I stand all those things, I wanted to focus on the history and the facts. To start, I found this interesting National Geographic article about beauty standards. And it was released mm. in February of 2020. And there was a quote that I really liked from it. So it said, quote, we've been chasing beauty for millennia, crimping and painting our way to a more desirable ideal. Cultures in every era have held different standards of feminine beauty and myriad means of achieving it. But the standards often serve the same aims, to attract and retain a mate, to signal social status, wealth, health, or fertility, and of course, to simply feel beautiful. And I thought that was a super poignant way of putting it because before I got into all of these different cultures and the eons of beauty standards that we've had, I think it's important to stay grounded in the fact that beauty often, not always, but often awards us a level of privilege, Mm -hmm. regardless of who we are. So the more beautiful you are, you get awarded different privileges. And that's why we chase beauty or we compensate for the fact that maybe we don't feel beautiful. And I think remaining grounded in that fact of like why we're chasing beauty is a good place to start. And the same National Geographic article had this section where they were talking about different grading scales to describe the feminine ideal. So I thought I'd share them. They are homely. Homely. (laughs) I will explain homely in a second. Homely. Jolie, Lad, I'm so sorry, I don't speak French. Attractive, pretty, and beautiful. So, Char, what do you think they mean by homely? Is homely <laughs> supposed to be like a nice way of saying that you're not pretty? Like, <laughs> what? What does homely mean? So, they described homely as, quote, managing as best she could. Oh, God. She, she, as in the metaphorical woman who is homely, just gets used to the fact that her looks aren't going to help her but this woman has a terrific personality (laughs) oh that's good (laughs) she's really the one winning then because personalities you can't cover up (laughs) i know i just thought that was so savage i was like what it got me thinking about strata of beauty and how those vary across cultures and how those have changed across time And so I wanted to get into that. And so if we're starting way, way, way back at the beginning, it's not really the beginning, but the furthest back that I could find was we're talking about ancient Mesopotamia, which I know I mentioned in a previous episode, but honestly, my only exposure to Mesopotamia was when my college roommates took this class called Great Books, and they had to read the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was an ancient Mesopotamian epic. And truly, the only line I know from that book is, for six days and seven nights, Enkidu was erect, (laughs) which I don't even know. I just, it's not possible to be erect for six days and seven nights straight. But like, good for you, Enkidu. Wow. He had a lot of Viagra. (laughs) Um, But you're the one with the classics background, Char. So I was wondering if you could give us a little background on ancient Mesopotamia. For context, I can, I can indeed. What is Mesopotamia? Well, it is a region that is located in the Southwest Asia and it's around the Mediterranean Sea, which today would be um, the Middle East. 
And this region is in history commonly referred to as the Fertile Crescent or the Cradle of Civilization, just due to the number of civilizations and influences region had on history. So what people live there, you probably are wondering, why do they live there specifically? And it's because Mesopotamia quite literally means between two rivers. If there's water, then you have more natural resources and you have more fertile land, which means you have more crops, which means your people are going to be healthier and be wealthier. And overall, you're just going to have a lot more resources and success which is exactly why so many civilizations lived in this area. There was the Gilgamesh, the Sargon, the Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Hades, the Assyrians, the Persian Empire. Like it keeps going and going and going. There's so many people who have lived in this region. And these civilizations really left their mark. So like you mentioned, Alicia, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is considered an early great work of literature or the earliest from what I could read. And also it may have influenced some of the stories in the Bible. So it obviously has a ginormous oh. impact on the world. Also Babylon, you might've heard of. It's also in the new Taylor Swift song where she sings, now you hang from my lips like the gardens of Babylon, which is referring to the hanging gardens of Babylon, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This wonder is so important because it was one of the first times that there was a garden and that people were growing plants for pleasure and not for food. So it kind of was oh. symbolic in that people had the time to do these pleasurable things instead of always focusing on survival. So it's pretty interesting. So the main idea with ancient Mesopotamia, I guess, is that there was just a lot of civilizations there and they were always growing and innovating and developing over time. And they were kind of laying the ground for future civilizations. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's Thank my you. brief history from yay, Professor Charlotte. Yay, yay, Dr. Charlotte. <laughs> so helpful. To. appreciate you okay that was great um also makes a lot of sense because it's so old it was really difficult for me to find articles or like any kind of information about like beauty standards that was not a thing that people were working about in Mesopotamia but I did find a little bit of information about some of the really messed up parts of Mesopotamian marriage and oh. how like beauty played into that so I thought I'd share that um but apparently once a year all of the women in a village would be collected together. And then these men would come and circle around them like little vultures. And a dude would basically sell off the women based on their beauty. So like the most expensive woman would be the most beautiful. And then the quote unquote uglier women were given to commoners. They were like just given away. In fact, they were also given along with money. Like they were... They were like, take they were not the only, money. Yeah, they were like, take the and girl the and the money. <laughs> yeah. oh, God. I know. Like I hate insult. it here. I know. So Mesopotamia is like, no, not here for that. Yeah. And unfortunately, I couldn't find any descriptions of like what made someone beautiful or not. But in ancient Egypt, so we're thinking like 1292 to 1069 BCE. Uh, the ideal woman was described as slender with narrow shoulders, a high waist, and a symmetrical face. And okay. I'm kind of pairing these together because I think there was a lot of overlap between ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt because um, this one article that I found was talking a lot about makeup in these regions and at this time. Um, because makeup was actually already a thing in like ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. 
So everyone, men, women, children, babies, they all wore babies. coal. Babies. <laughs> they all wore coal eyeliner, um, which dates mm. back to 3500 BCE. And it was made up of the same stuff like the, the whole time. It was like ground up lead sulfide. Um, and then they would add things to it, like maybe powdered herbs or gems or pearls. And honestly, like that kind of that makes a lot of sense to me because of the reason why they wear eyeliner, why they would like put it on babies, because uh, they would wear it for a couple of reasons. They believed it helped reduce glare in the desert. Oh, um, interesting. So that was one reason. But then also they believed it protected them from eye diseases and from the evil eye which is the idea that people can hurt you just by looking at you. Right. Yeah. And like, I, now that I'm thinking about it in India still, like in some regions that are like pretty rural or really religious, like they still put eyeliner on babies to like protect them from the evil eye. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I think I just remembered that because <laughs> of the baby comment, but that's totally a thing. Oh, that's actually um, never heard of that. And apparently in, Prehistoric Mesopotamia, the first evil eye was actually conjunctivitis, um, also known as pink eye. And then eventually it morphed into this like superstitious thing. But originally it was just like evil eye, pink eye. Oh my God. Just germs in your Mm -hmm. eye. (laughs) What is a germ? (laughs) They didn't know. So they also made eyeshadow, especially green, which they could make by grinding up malachite or other copper oxides and mixing that powder with water. Um, rich, really rich women would crush up stones to color their lips, like rubies um, and other red rocks. And then they would like mix the red rock with white lead, which is just straight up poisonous. They would use it as lipstick and blush. Okay, more makeup. So they used iodine, which was extracted from seaweed at the time. And that leaves that like brownish red tint, which we see nowadays when we use like betadine or like things to Mm, use like mm -hmm. iodine to, um, what's it called? To clean the skin before you like cut the skin. (laughs) Yes, Dr. Charlotte. That is what they do. Technical terms. (laughs) And we use like iodine as a... Sterilize. They use it to sterilize things. Yes. (laughs) Some of the issues, though, that they would have with this iodine stuff is that some of the tints were poisonous. And so they'd be putting it on their lips, but then they'd go around kissing men and the men would just die. What? (laughs) I know I shouldn't be laughing, but it's just so funny. Oh, God. Um, Other things, I found a lot about ancient Egypt. They were just on it. So something else I thought was interesting that I guess they used to do in ancient Egypt is they would use henna powder to temporarily dye their hair and their fingernails, but they really wouldn't use it as body art. It wasn't until much later, like 700 BCE, that henna spread to India. And that's where it became like a big part of our culture as like body art and body decoration. And it's super popular today still. So I thought that Mm -hmm. was pretty cool. You do henna still. I do. I do. It's fun. I do. I I wish I had more time for it, but it's all good. It's all good. But okay, so we're finally moving on from ancient Egypt, moving into ancient Greece. So around like 500 to 300 BCE in ancient Greece, the ideal woman was plump, full bodied and with light skin. Um, Because, (laughs) yes, because ancient Greeks thought that the man was the ideal. So actually men faced higher 
beauty standards than women. Like they were dealing with like a lot more of these like perfection issues right. because they were just so much more valued that people didn't even care about what their women looked like. There I were wonder, a few features that were valued on women. What? I was going to say, I wonder if like the Olympic games played into that. Cause like they would compete like completely naked. So I wonder if. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> you didn't know that. So I wonder if that's why like there was like pressure on the men to look a certain way because you were literally naked running track. Oh, maybe. That is weird. They are. They are weird. And we'll continue to explain why they're weird. So they had a few features that they valued on women. So they liked women that had a straight nose, a low forehead, perfect eyebrows with a delicate arch just over the brow bone that grew together over the nose. So they want a unibrow? (laughs) They want pointy nose and unibrows. It sounds like they want a witch. That's what they want. (laughs) They wanted like a Muppet. I don't know. Um... But they also really valued hair, particularly blonde hair worn simply and gathered in a knot, a top knot with ribbon. Um, So in China, during the Han Dynasty, which lasted from 206 BC to 220 AD, the ideal woman had slim waist, pale skin, large eyes, and small feet. And this is interesting. So have you ever heard of foot binding? I have, actually. What do you know about foot binding? Wouldn't you like bind your feet as like a child to try and keep them smaller so they like wouldn't grow Mm -hmm. and that it would really hurt and they could become all like clubby and such? Yes. Very bad. Yes, that's exactly what would happen. So I remember my dad told me about this when I was a child and I was like traumatized. I remember reading about it as a child. Like, oh, I feel God. like it was in those dystopian Cinderella books for some reason. Books that like talked about not perfect fairy tales. They were like more dystopian fairy tales, more realistic, I guess, actually. Oh, I think okay. it was in one of those. So basically, this practice was actually popularized in the Han Dynasty. Um, and like you were saying, from the age of like five or six, girls would have to bind their feet in silk straps and basically misshape the foot to make it really small. And it was a really awful practice. But for more perspective, the ideal bride had a three-inch foot. Ah! Though it was acceptable to have a four-inch foot. And getting less acceptable if you had a five-inch foot. Was there a purpose to this? Uh, Couldn't tell ya. I don't know. Maybe it's because, like, they wanted them to be more doll-like. Also, I know, like... This wasn't a thing before, but it's definitely a thing now where a lot of East Asian countries, um, in a lot of East Asian countries, plastic surgery is a big part of life. Also, Korean skincare is like insane, not in a bad way, because I really love Korean beauty products. It's like but like, I feel like it's really tiring. Um, and so I know that there's just a lot. There's a lot in East Asian beauty that I am not equipped to speak about. But I wanted to acknowledge it because it's like a very real thing mm-hmm. and very different from Western standards, but also kind of caused by Western standards. But OK, moving on. So ancient Romans um, actually had a beauty guide written by this Roman poet named Ovid. And all of the upper class women had their makeup they made according to these formulas. So women would tint their hair if it became gray. They'd put wax on wrinkled skin to make it look smoother. And they would replace missing eyebrows with ones made out of fur. What? (laughs) 
<laughs> During the Italian Renaissance, 1400 to 1700, the ideal woman had an ample bosom, a rounded stomach, full hips, and fair skin because it was a wife's duty to reflect her husband's status and being on the heavier side showed people that her husband was providing for her well and was wealthy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a popular cosmetic product at the time was called Venetian Ceruse. Uh, and it was another product made out of white lead. <laughs> Women would God. like rub it all up, make them look more pale, and then they would die. That is bad. Hemoglobin. <laughs> I know. Lead is bad. Um, and it was also around this time that bathing became acceptable. Very fun. Oh, good. They started bathing now? They started bathing. They even had a sale pitch. They even had a sales pitch. It was water to make women beautiful forever. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. I was thinking about that in the shower this morning. I was like, water making me beautiful forever. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. But no soap necessary. Just water. Yeah. In India, for a really long time, they had cosmetology practices created to cleanse their skin and cover up imperfections. This is like ancient stuff. You know, they've been doing a lot of cosmetology for a really long time. But apparently by the late 1800s, one of the kings called Raja Surf... Raja? Surf... Surf... Wait, I'm Indian. Why can't I say <laughs> His name is Raja Sirfoji. And he wrote out these recipes that he created through all this experimentation that he did. He was like really into that. Um, and so some of the things that he made are actually really telling of Indian beauty standards at the time. And honestly, also now. So he made things like lip balm, skin lightening and exfoliating scrub, a cure for dandruff, depilatory agents. So like things that get rid of body hair and mm -hmm. breast developers, among other things. And I just thought that was interesting because a lot of those things are still used in India today to meet certain beauty standards. Mm -hmm. um, and it was interesting, but also sad that those standards had existed a really long time ago. I know. I, I, we've talked about the skin lightening, I think, before. That there was a Yeah, product. fair and lovely. Oh my God, such a problem. We'll talk yeah. about it more later because it's like, such a problem okay but moving right along victorian england valued women that were desirably plump full-figured and had a cinched waist that's right the age of corsets is here <laughs> oh god i was like how is that possible we're, we're all about that hourglass figure um but beyond that in the victorian era women had to be both seductive and innocent at the same time should they wear makeup to make themselves look prettier, even though makeup was associated with prostitutes? That was the big question. And like, that's super familiar. You are asking me to do two separate things. Oh, you have to be like sexy, but not too sexy. Like the no because makeup, makeup like, look. Like you look oh my God, yeah. and cute, but you don't look like you have makeup on. Like, like you're trying. Right. Like you didn't try. It's like, I don't know what you want from me. The Roaring Twenties brought an emphasis on having a flat chest, a downplayed waist, short bob hairstyles, and a boyish figure because they were going for a very androgynous look, which I thought was interesting. But honestly, side note, I really love flapper girl energy. I feel like I would have really thrived in the 20s, except for <laughs> yeah. that there was like zero people of color 
in the United States, except for black people. And <laughs> hey, we're definitely going to after this pandemic, there's going to be another roaring 20s ish thing. Oh, I'm ready. Like, I'm so ready. It makes so much sense because there was the 19, like 18, 19 flu pandemic and then it ended. And then people partied for like a whole decade. And that's totally what's going to happen again. Oh my God, you're so right. Yeah. And I'm so excited for it. So you will have your moment to shine. My flapper <laughs> moment. Yes. Oh, uh, so 1950s, 1930s to 1950s, you should be thinking Marilyn Monroe, golden age of Hollywood. So we're talking curves, hourglass figure, big boobs, slim waist, right? Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. Transition into the 60s, we have like a more willowy, thin figure, person with long, slim legs, and a more adolescent body type, which I thought was kind of weird. But creepy. Like, yeah, very creepy. But like, oh, okay, whatever. Like. That was the 60s, I suppose. The 80s was like supermodel era, like athletic body type, slim but curvy, tall, toned arms. And basically everyone was on like an exercise craze. Ooh, like all those exercise videos. Yes. And so women felt this need to be like thin, but also fit. And based off of that, what do you, do you have any ideas of like medical issues that might've increased during this time? Like eating disorders? Yeah. Yeah. Eating disorders like anorexia, bulimia, and like, dude, think about it. It makes total sense because Princess Diana struggled with her eating disorders and she was like princess in the eighties. The nineties had an interesting description. So they described the ideal body type as extremely thin, translucent skin, androgynous and waifish. (laughs) Have you ever heard of a waif? Do you know what that is? No, what? So in one of my small groups, actually, like last semester, one time we had this doctor who was leading it and he called the fake patient in our case, a young waif. And my friends and I were like, what the heck is a waif? So we looked it up and according to Merriam-Webster dictionary, it is, quote, a stray person or animal, especially a homeless child. But it's also like someone who's extremely thin, um, usually a young woman. So I think that was the idea of having someone be like super thin, skinny, like translucent, translucent skin. It's weird because it sounds like almost unhealthy to me. So now I'm just like hyper aware of people calling other people waves, which doesn't come up that I've much. But like never heard has that word in my twice. whole life. It's come up twice for me in the last two months. And I'm like, that's a little too often. Let's yeah, chill. What? But we've actually reached modern day. So what would you say, in your humble opinion, what would you say are like the current beauty standards now? Big butts are in style. Big booties, yes. Um, Big lips. I don't know what else. I feel like being like athletic looking is in style, like being in shape. Yeah. Having a thin waist. Definitely like mm-hmm. corsets mm-hmm. are coming back, which I don't I understand. Know. Yeah, no, honestly, you hit like a lot of the ones that, the BuzzFeed article that I'm citing, like listed. So, um, I mean, let me know if you disagree with any of them, but they were saying that the current beauty standards are like a woman with a flat stomach who is healthy, skinny, like you were saying, yeah. um, who has like large breasts, a big butt and a thigh gap, actually, they mentioned. Interesting. 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 Know, like, yeah. anyone with thigh gap. You know what I'm thinking of? Have you watched Taylor Swift 
documentary on Netflix. Yeah, the one where she's like, I'm deciding to be political. Yes, that's one. Yeah. There's like the quote from it where she's talking about if you have the big butt that everyone wants, then your stomach isn't flat enough. But if you have the flat stomach than you want, then you're not thick enough. And she just goes like, it's literally impossible because when you achieve like one beauty standard, you're taking the other one away, basically. So you can never like be the perfect person. Oh, that's interesting. I don't remember that, but she's not wrong because that's not how bodies work. I think you'd have to have like plastic surgery to get that done. It's like not possible. And yeah. I, it's a weird time. It's like taking all of these combinations of different beauty standards over time and like squishing them together in this unrealistic way. Yeah. But I feel like that um, was like that during like all of history too. Like, guess we'll talk yeah, about definitely. I think I'm just feeling more salty about it. Cause I'm alive right now, but yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> because true. I'm living in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I actually wanted to talk a little bit about some issues that women are dealing with when it comes to beauty and health today in and in particular one of the big things is the products that we use and how those products are affecting our physical health mm-hmm. um because what a lot of people don't realize is that beauty products aren't regulated by the FDA just how like vitamins and supplements aren't actually regulated by the FDA like mm-hmm. neither are beauty products and so you can walk into a pharmacy and like pick up something and it could have like a lot of chemicals in it that you don't even know are going to impact you long-term. And so that's why like companies really matter and like how much you can trust your like beauty company to be, you know, testing their products is Mm -hmm. something to consider. So I actually wanted to take a moment, do a little thought experiment between the two of us. Sample size two. Great study already. (laughs) Yes. To think about the different products that we use in a day. So things like shampoo, face wash, perfume, nail polish, like any makeup that you use. And then count them up. Tell me how many you can think of. I'll just go through my morning routine. Face wash, vitamin C serum, lotion, sunscreen, eye cream, toothpaste, concealer, baby cream, eyebrow stuff, mascara, chapstick. That's 11 already. And that's for like low maintenance beauty. I did. I did low maintenance beauty. I have 13. So I have shampoo, (laughs) conditioner, body wash. Oh, I didn't didn't include the shower. (laughs) Oh, I also included like nail polish and nail polish remover just because I did my nails when I was thinking about this question. And I was like, oh my God, this is straight up acetone that I'm putting on my fingers right now. Yeah. I mean, I wear fake nails. So like the glue that you put on the fake nail. Mm, Yeah. Um, I also had a face wash, exfoliant, my serum, lotion, lip balm, the castor oil that I use, mascara, mm-hmm. and blush. And that's 13. Oh, yeah. And so that's a lot blush. of room for, like, exposure to harmful right. chemicals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so also just, like, quick follow-up is can you think of any products that we use, not necessarily us, but uh, us as a society, like us as women, that we use to make ourselves, like, look more beautiful that puts us at potential risk of harm. I was thinking about lipstick because there's actually a brand that um, the reason it started was to like focus on this issue, I guess. You ever heard of Bite Beauty? No. It's like a brand. Well, it like it started or its main focus when it began was that women consume so much lipstick a year 
of being on your lips and then you like eat it. And then that's not great for your body. So Bite Beauty is a clean beauty brand that focused on making Mm. lipsticks that were not harmful to you because you end up, it's in your mouth. You're going to end up eating it unintentionally. It's a clean beauty brand basically that was started because of this whole concept of makeup you're wearing is harmful to your body. Oh, interesting. I had no idea. So yeah, if I had to think of a product, yeah. I was thinking of lipstick specifically because I knew about that brand and like why it started. Oh, interesting. That's a good one. I wasn't thinking about those. I was thinking about like Accutane. Oh God, yeah, Accutane. <laughs> I was super like, bad. oh my God, Accutane is so bad. If you have the ability to have a child, you have to be on birth control in order to take Accutane or you have to sign an affidavit saying that you're not going to have sex. It can really affect your baby's like nervous system um, development and stuff. Oh God. Yeah. I was also just thinking about like Botox. If you, if Botox goes wrong, you can like paralyze a lot of things. Yeah. Um, Hit a nerve in your face. Oh no. Very bad. Bad, bad. Also like all of the different hair removal things we use, like we wax, we use face bleach, hair bleach, like we're bleaching all the body hairs, hair, Mm. hair, even. Um, and then also like skin bleaching that I was talking about before, like fair and lovely. I think it's killing cells that you shouldn't be killing. It's probably bad for you. I know. Yeah. If you are a woman out there, even considering using fair and lovely, please don't just, just email us and be like, I was thinking about using fair and lovely. And I will be like, don't do it. (laughs) I will be your best friend. Don't use fair and lovely. It's bad for you. And you're beautiful. There's no need to lighten your skin. but. Talking about all of these like dangerous things, I was wondering about some of the products or some of the chemicals in our beauty products that could hurt us, like the specific chemicals in them. Right. Um, and so the Environmental Working Group, which is this nonprofit that works to lobby for transparency about chemicals in our products and to combat deficiencies in our cosmetics regulation, they have this great website that we will link in the show notes, where you can look by product type or by age or gender at different products and the different chemicals those products have. And so in general, they have 12 chemicals that they are lobbying to be banned in the United States. So there's formaldehyde, paraformaldehyde, methylene glycol, and quartarium 15, which are all related to formaldehyde, which is a known carcinogen, and they put that Mm -hmm. in makeup. There's mercury, which damages our kidneys and nervous systems. There's phthalates and parabens, which disrupt their hormone disruptors. And so they can harm your reproductive system. There are PFAs, which are substances associated with cancer. And there's M and O phenylenediamines, which are used in hair dyes. And they can irritate the skin and also cause cancer. So all of these chemicals are still being used in our beauty products. And so there's something that we should be looking for, like on the back of our bottles. Right. But the thing is, not all companies are even required to list the like chemicals that they're using. They have to list the active ingredients, but they don't necessarily have to list the inactive ingredients. It, even just like one step is to have them be listed. Mm-hmm. And then from there, hopefully be like banned entirely. But something I wanted to highlight is another example of chemicals and products that are harming us in like really tangible ways. And the example is hair dye. So in an article published in December of 2019 in the International Journal of Cancer, 
researchers found a link between hair dye and breast cancer. So women in the study who used permanent hair dye at least once a year had a 9% higher risk of developing breast cancer than women who didn't use hair dye. That's crazy. I know. And African-American women were found to be at a 45% higher risk of developing breast cancer compared to women who didn't use dye. I know, but it didn't really correlate to like how often they used it. So that's what makes it even more of a mystery. And I wish I could explain why. And I I don't know. The researchers also are unsure. Wait, so African-American women who use hair dye were at a higher risk? Yeah, like they were at a 45% higher risk um, of getting breast cancer than women who didn't use hair dye. But it wasn't necessarily because like then you could try to say like, oh, but, you know, because of the racial discriminatory practices and prejudices that we put on black women to have certain hair types or look a certain way Mm -hmm. that they have to use hair dyes more often. Um, But that is not the correlation that they found. Like it wasn't because they used it more often that they had a higher risk. Um, And it was like an unexplainable reason. Similar findings actually came up with perm products like relaxers. So using these products were associated with increased breast cancer risk among all participants, regardless of like race or background. And this makes sense in the sense that chemicals and fragrances and things that we put in our hair dyes are often endocrine disruptors, but 84% of detect chemicals weren't listed on the product label. So Um, many not listed. I know. I know. They just like aren't listing things. And I think they're like doing more research to try to find more correlations and like help protect black women. I hope so. And there are also associations between beauty product, chemicals, and asthma, as well as uterine fibroids, which are these non-cancerous fibrous growths in your uterus that if left untreated can cause reproductive issues, but they're benign, but they're still like a medical condition, you know? Mm -hmm. And that, all of that stuff, all of those like direct correlations don't even begin to cover the mental health impact that women endure as a result of beauty standards, which we usually think of as only affecting young women, like, you know, teenagers and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to acknowledge that it affects folks of all ages, especially women and individuals that identify with the LGBTQ plus community. And I think many of us have either thought about our body images firsthand or know someone who struggled with their body image, Mm -hmm. which is why I feel like this would be a good place to take a pause and move into our discussion so we can talk about this a little more. How does that sound? Let's do it. giving us little snapshots of beauty standards over time. And I guess I wanted to start by asking you, Shar, what was there one of them that really stuck with you or that you liked a lot? The 80s one is crazy that the supermodel was started in that time. Yeah. Because I think that was like a big every other one before that I felt like every civilization one was skinny and like really tiny. And then the next civilization was plump with big boobs and a rounded waist and like and then they went back and forth like that for a millennia just kept going and then we get to like the 80s and it's supermodels who are athletic tall but lean which 
is different than kind of any other time Skinny. period we talked yeah, about. Yeah, that's so true. What's one you found interesting? Um, I think I... I think honestly, I found the really old stuff interesting, like all that stuff about ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. know about all of the makeup and stuff that they used. And since I spent so much time like researching it, I thought that was pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. That is cool. Yeah. So my next question is there's a pretty precarious relationship between being healthy and being beautiful, I think, especially when it comes to weight. And so, as I was starting my research, I was like, oh, yes, like I'm so here for like overcoming body shamers and embracing curves and roles because I have those. And I'm like, yes, we are just here accepting all of what we have. But we've just finished one semester of medical school. And like from a medical perspective, there are a lot of medical issues associated with being overweight. Mm-hmm. and obesity. And so my question is, how do we reconcile that? I feel like the body image movement in terms of health, if it's accepting who you are and being okay with how you look and not looking in the mirror and being like, wow, I hate my body. Like the body image movement is about being accepting who you are and like what you look like. But I don't think that essentially means that like you are desiring to be that weight in health standards, if that makes sense. I don't know mm-hmm. how to make that make sense, but like health wise, I don't think the body movement is about being like, oh, we want to gain weight or be a certain weight it's hard it sounds like they're like separate entities like you're saying that they're like separate things like you so want like the body to be okay in- with your weight and you want to accept your own body image and be happy with it but you also want to look out for your own health and that doesn't mean that you need to like lose a certain amount of weight in a certain amount of time but also doesn't mean that you should be okay with gaining tons of weight either because it is detrimental to your health yeah yeah, it is. It's a complicated. No, it's a hard question. And I mean, I'm here to ask the hard questions, you know, I guess something I was thinking about was actually more from the medical side, just because being I mean, we are a, like only a semester into med school, but already something that I've realized is that a lot of the metrics that we use to kind of make a quick judgment about like whether something is quote unquote normal or abnormal or are these numbers okay or not okay. A lot of those metrics are really skewed. And so like BMI is something that we use a lot to determine whether someone is a quote unquote healthy weight. But the thing is, is BMI is like not an accurate indicator of the amount of body fat that you have. And body fat is really what we're thinking about when we're thinking about like detriments to health. Right. Because body fat is what is linked to diabetes and heart disease and all these things. Mm-hmm. But you could just be really muscular. I was say muscle weight is huge. It has more weight than body fat. Mm-hmm. And we don't consider that as part of BMI. And so like, if I'm being super honest and candid here, like I've always been on the cusp between healthy and overweight. But I also was like an athlete for my whole I was childhood. Say, super fit. Like in my opinion, I, like I think you're very in thank shape. You. <laughs> like you run I six was. miles and I can barely run a mile. Like that's the thing though, right? Is like no one's ever I've had to come to that conclusion myself that like my weight is healthy. Um, because BMI is not an accurate indicator of like my health. Mm-hmm. And so that was something that I was thinking about a lot. And like a lot of the metrics that we use are just um they were created in skewed populations. And we talked about this a lot before, but I actually wanted to point out this one 
paper that actually came out recently out of University of Michigan. Um, and the researchers, who one of them is our dean of admissions, Dean Gay, who's like so Ooh, fun and cool. Even I know who he is. <laughs> I know, he's cool. And he's a pulmonary critical care doctor. And they actually did this big study where they found that pulse oximeters, you know, those like little things that they put on your finger on your to like- finger. Yeah, they put it on your finger to make to see like what your um, hemoglobin saturation is. So they're looking at like how much oxygen basically you're like getting in your body and how much is getting to your organs and stuff. Yeah. Um, and they found that pulse oxes were not actually an accurate indicator of hypoxemia or low blood oxygen content in um, African American populations it's because all the calibrations and stuff that they did and all the studies that they did were like done on white people. So like a lot of black patients have been dying, especially with COVID for various reasons. One of them, including this like racist calibration of this pulse ox. And so actually, um, I'm telling you this now and I'm telling like any listener who's like going into the medical field, but it's important to take an arterial blood gas of especially patients of color because that is a more accurate determination of hypoxemia than a pulse ox because your pulse ox might look normal, but actually they have low blood oxygen. So just putting that out there into the world for us to know. But yeah, that it just ties into the fact that like we, our metrics are really messed up a lot of the times. And so determining from a medical perspective, what is healthy, that's its own thing. Right. right. And so then that's even more complicated when we're now like adding this layer of okay, well, what is body image? How does that play into it? Mm -hmm. My last question is that I was reading this article about how beauty standards have come a long way and that we're now more inclusive than ever. And that may be true. And I do agree with that. But I'm wondering what your opinion is about things that you think we need to work on as a whole. Like what are some ways we can be better in terms of beauty standards? And talking about them. I just think what I think about beauty standards is that I, when I talk about them with my friends, I never like assume a certain thing about how they might view beauty or how they might like view their own body image because someone could be really happy with how they look and the same, another person could have that same look and be like completely unhappy with it. I don't want to mm -hmm. go into a conversation with someone assuming that they feel a certain way about how they look or they feel a certain way about like using makeup or doing their hair and things like that. Like, so the way that I approach beauty standards, I try to be like open-minded about how I approach people when I talk about beauty standards. Cause I don't know like what their thoughts are on how they view themselves. It, it, it's such a hard thing. And I think it's so tied to society in the way that we socialize each other. I think the inclusivity part is, has been really great. Like, I think we've been being like a lot more inclusive, at least what I've been reading, like the rate of inclusivity and the rate of change in fashion and like modern beauty has been so much faster than in the past mm -hmm. that now we're making these like big strides in terms of like, what is beautiful? What is not beautiful, et cetera. Um, I think though, one of my things is there's still a lot of pushback and there's always going to be pushback. But like, I was thinking about the Harry Styles Vogue cover actually and how he looked truly gorgeous like literally a beautiful man and he was wearing this like 
amazing dress. Mm-hmm. Candace Owens literally came for him. Mm-hmm. And she was, she said that him wearing a dress was an attack on quote unquote manly men. And I'm just like, this is not helpful. This is not productive. Like the manly man, I bet hasn't even seen the picture. Like, why would he be <laughs> looking at Vogue? You know, like maybe beauty is like religion. We just like let people do what they want to do and stop putting it on yeah, other people. Exactly. And I was also thinking about like you, you asked, which I realized I didn't answer the question of like healthcare providers and how to approach that because mm. I think it's difficult a lot of healthcare providers when they're not thinking or whatever. And sometimes just kind of like, especially yeah. with women to just like you, the reason you're having these issues is because you need to lose weight. And then it ends up being another issue because it wasn't looked into weight can have a big effect on health. Like I was thinking of like pulmonary, like if you have too much weight on your chest and like, it's hard to breathe then it can make like cause a lot of issues. Yeah. But sometimes like healthcare providers can just jump to weight without actually looking past like someone's looks to actually think about an, a real diagnosis, I guess. So I think changing that yeah. culture in healthcare is like a big thing that will help with beauty standards. Cause I think from a healthcare provider standpoint, talking about beauty standards in terms of weight needs to change. And even like talking about mental health in terms of beauty standards needs to like be more pertinent too. Something I'm trying to be like more aware of too is how to create spaces that are more body positive and and like I think that also just comes with like practice of like how to make spaces where your patients can trust you. And that's like an ongoing mm. an ongoing thing that I'm trying to figure out and we'll probably not figure out for a long time, but hopefully one day. Okay. Well, yay. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Yes, of course. Yay. Okay. So if you liked our episode and you want to hear more, you should subscribe to the podcast on all the podcasting apps. We are available truly everywhere. Um, And if you are, and we would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review. Um, And if you want to do that, Apple Podcasts is the best place. Yes. And then you can also check us out on our social media. We are at From Scars to Scrubs on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, so go ahead and go over there and follow us. You can also check out our website, which is fromscarsdescrubs.com for more information on all of our episodes and on Alicia and I. You can check out our show notes and our sources for each episode. And you can now find our merch there as well. Yes. And as our podcast grows, We are interested in doing more collaborations and making more bonus content for you all. So if you or someone you know is interested in working with us, you should shoot us an email or Insta DM us. We love talking to you guys um, and would love to hear from you. Yes. And our email can be found on our website as well. So lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay! Yay! Season two. Season two. <laughs> <laughs>